if sin is real, then there has to be a real solution to our sin problem. If sin is real and guilt is real, then what we need most desperately is a real solution to our sin and guilt. Pretending is not going to help. Wishful thinking is not going to help. And creating our own truth is not something that is going to help. I don't usually show video clips and messages, but I'm going to show you one this morning because I think it's powerful and I think it helps us to think about something with this passage and what this passage tells us, what it delivers to us. Video clip I'm going to show you, it's from a TV show. Many of you probably have seen it. It's been off the air for a while. It's a hospital show. It's called ER. And in this short clip, there is a man that is in the hospital, and he is a patient. He is dying. He is also racked with guilt, guilt that he has in his life that is unabsolved, and he doesn't know what to do with this guilt as he faces what comes next. The other main character in this clip, this woman is the chaplain. She's come to talk to him, uh, but she's the kind of chaplain that is, is liberal in her theology, the kind that says you need, each of us needs to find our own truth. And so, take a look at this clip. Several months later, a police officer came forward. The boy was framed for the murder. Huh? He didn't do it. I couldn't have known that. God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man, and I ignored the sign. How can I even hope for forgiveness? I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. Which means what? That maybe your guilt over these deaths has become your reason for living. Maybe you need a new reason to go on. I, I, I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I'm old. I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that is holding me back is that I am afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. And what do you think that is? Well, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. So people can do anything? They can rave, they can murder, they can steal all in the name of God and it's okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all crap. Hey, Dr. Truman. No, I don't have time for this now. Greg, it's okay. Look, I understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. How could you possibly say that? Now, you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself... No, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. I know you're upset. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. I'm trying to help. Well, don't! Just get out! Get out! Get out! Is forgiveness even possible? Is it something we're just going to make up? We're going to decide what we want? Or can we have real answers? Knowing that our sin problem is a real thing. That there is a real God. That our sin is real. And we need real atonement from this. We need a real forgiveness that is not just wishful thinking, but is based in reality, that is based in God's word, his promises, and something that God has done in reality for us. Let's look at God's word here today. Our answers are not found in our hearts. Our answers are not found in what we think or surveys. 
It's found in the Word of God, in reality, and what God tells us. 1 John, I want to start from last week's message, because this ties together. So let's start from 1 John 1, and we'll read verse 5 until we get into the actual sections that are here for us today in uh, the first two verses of chapter 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. As our message from last week, now the next two verses in chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So last week in that section that we read before, uh, we saw I was talking about the light and the darkness. And it was making the point that sin is real. Our sin problem is real. And two of the things I think it was saying to us very clearly uh, is mentioning that I think in the background of this, John realized that there was false teachers with uh, the, the Christians that, uh, that he had taught, that he had mentored in these different churches in the area. And some of them were claiming that, uh, that they were the real deal, but they're walking in sin, and they're walking in just unrepented sin and saying that that's okay. And we say, no, it can't be like that. God is light. He is holiness and goodness. And if you're just continually just living in sin with no change, you're not even trying to fight against it, that's not a mark that you're an authentic Christian. That's a mark that you're a fake. And also, if you claim that you don't have a sin problem at all, that you're just, you're good. Maybe you make a little mistake or whatever, but you don't have this sin problem. He's like, that's also a mark that somebody is fake, that they're not the real deal. Being a real Christian, we admit that sin is real. It's not a social construct. It's not an illusion. Uh, it's something that is deep in our hearts, that we are born in sin and we do sin, and it is a real problem and something that we cannot just wash away on ourselves, that we need a real solution for this. And so it goes on into this next section that we just read. Say, my little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. As we look at this, the first point that I want to get, we're going to look at verse 1 first. We see that forgiveness is real because Jesus intercedes for believers. Let's walk through this verse. It starts by saying, my little children. John is talking to his, his readers, uh, probably Christians that are throughout what is now uh, Turkey. And John is writing this from Ephesus, which uh, the, was in uh, the ruins of it are in uh, western Turkey. And he had been uh, you know, for decades, teaching and uh, helping these different Christians. And notice he calls them my little children. They weren't his biological children. They were his spiritual children. And he's not writing this to demean them, but he's an elderly man at this point. Uh, it's probably, he might be the last of the apostles. And you can see from this, you can see his care, you can see his heart, his compassion for his, his readers, uh, that he's writing this too. He cares about them very, very deeply. I think I also notice here that as we get into chapter 2, and John didn't write, you know, chapter 2 when he started this, but there's, I think, a little bit of a shift that's happening, you know, in this section. Because when we look at uh, the passages that we read for last week, it seems that for those, John is kind of has, I think, kind of two different scenarios in mind. There are, you know, the false teachers that are trying to influence them, and he's trying to give them ways to know who the false ones are. So if there's people that they're just living in sin, they're endorsing sin, 
And he's saying that's not a mark that they're genuine. That's a mark that they're fake. And also, if people pretend that they don't sin, they don't have a problem, or the things they're doing, God is okay with that, uh, that, that is not a mark of a genuine Christian either. In fact, you're making God to be a liar. You're saying He is a liar. If you're saying, well, I don't sin when God says I'm a sinner, but I don't think so, or if they're saying this thing that God says is a sin, I don't think so. I think that's okay. Those are marks of false Christians. But I think in that section, he also has a purpose for believers to help them to know, uh, to remember that we all do sin, we all have this as an issue in our lives, and that we need to go to the Lord. We need to confess our sins. And we need to, that's how you become a Christian, admitting that you're a sinner. Confession literally means, uh, to, the word, Greek word here, to say the same as, so they have the same view about your sin, your condition, and also sins that God has, and to, we come into alignment with God, what He thinks about sin and His attitude towards it. That's part of our, our repentance as we come to Him with this. But it also doesn't mean that we're going to be living a perfect life. We should try to, but we're never going to get there in this life. But when we get to this section here in uh, these two verses in chapter 2, and notice he, again, he says, my dear children. At this point, he's saying some things that are very specific for believers, for Christians, those that are genuinely Christians. So, at this point, he's letting us know that um, when he talks about this, he's saying things that are, that are true for those that have trusted Christ as Savior, but for those that haven't yet, it is not, necess- it is not true for them. They cannot say that they have an advocate in heaven, an intercessor that is pleading for them. He says, my children. So again, he's focusing on uh, addressing Christians specifically here. And he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And this is why I read the passage from last week as well. Paul wrote these things to us, or excuse me, John wrote these things to us in part to help Christians to keep from sinning. And so, as we struggle with sin, as we're fighting against that, we need to remember these type of things, that that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so, we can't just say, well, it's okay that I have some darkness in my life. That is the reality, but it's not something that we should ever be okay with. Whenever we see sin in our life, whenever we notice it cropping up, and it's, it's there, and the digger we deep, the more that we see, the more we need to keep going to God confessing that, repenting that, and trying to get back into the light if wherever we see ourselves starting to veer towards living, walking in the darkness. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he says, but if anyone does sin, and this is letting us know that sin is, is a reality with us. It is not something that... Um, that you become a Christian and you're just done with it. You don't have to deal with sin in your life anymore. No, it's going to be a struggle. And so one of the things that we see from these passages together is that Christians never achieve sinless perfection in this life. Don't think that it's a matter of <clears throat> you, you pray you receive Jesus or when you become a member you're baptized, you're just, you're just done with sin. It's going to be something that we wrestle with, that we fight against our entire life until the Lord comes back or takes us home. In this life, it's going to be this struggle. And he's telling us here, what do we need to do as Christians? We're not just, the fact that it's inevitable doesn't mean that we should just be okay with it. But we also don't want to be just driven to despair, that we're just, we're just lost because of the hopelessness of it. So how do we deal with it? But Christians never achieve sinless perfection in this life. There's some that teach that. There are some, uh, some churches, some uh, theologians that teach that. Uh, some of the strains that come out of Charles Wesley, and there was a lot of good that he taught, uh, but in some Wesley, uh, it, Wesleyan churches, not all of them, but some, they teach uh, perfectionism, that, that you can hit a part of life where you are completely sanctified in this life, that you will just never sin again. And some people will claim that. They'll claim that it talks about in the Bible that we're to put to death the old man, the old nature, and refers to it as the old man, and that, that you can do that, that you can be saved and then sanctified in, in the sense that you're just done with sin. 
you'll never knowingly commit a, a sin again. Uh, there's a story that, uh, whether true or not, that uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great British preacher, uh, he met a man that, that claimed this. And this man wanted to you know, get together with Spurgeon and talk with him. So Spurgeon said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. And this man was telling him how about how he had achieved you know, sinless perfection, how he had you know, uh, put to death the old man, the sin nature in his life. And Spurgeon took his, his glass of water and he went and he splashed it in the guy's face. And the guy stood up and, and flipped out and started yelling and cursing. And Spurgeon said to him, Ah, oh, I guess the old man is not as dead as you think, but merely asleep. And I seem to have woke him up with a glass of water. And he made his point. I think it's just good to be realistic about this. If you think that you've reached this place where you're not sinning, first of all, you have to lie to yourself. You have to uh, redefine sin, you know, so that it's, you're not worried about the heart issues, the heart sin. And you end up living a life that's just not in reality. And the reality I can tell you is that, yeah, you struggle with sin. I know that you do. I know that I do. We all do. And... In one sense, it's not okay, because sin's not okay, but it's, it's normal. And God knows that we're sinning. The important thing is that you're fighting against it, that you're, you're pushing ahead with God's help. You're not saved by reaching your own sinless perfection. You're also not saved by how hard you're trying to do that. You're saved by the blood of Christ. But the Christian life should be one that we're trying with God's help to put to death our sins and to grow in Christ. But it's not about pretending perfection. Um, it's not about, well, on one hand, it's not about pretending perfection. On the other hand, though, it's not about just living in the pigsty, okay? And that's the other extreme. Well, it doesn't, I can't reach perfection, so I'll just live in the pigsty of my life, and I don't have to repent of anything because God doesn't care, and I'll just live in my sin. No. Scripture told us don't be walking in darkness. That's not what Christians should be doing. So on one hand, it's not pretending perfection. It's also not the pigsty, but it's progress, progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit working in your life to change you from the inside out little by little. But even then, that's not how you're saved, and that's not why you're saved. That's an effect of being saved. That's not the cause of why any of us are saved. So what do we do as Christians when we do sin? In these passages, we've seen some of the answers to this. That one is you confess your sin. Again, this is not just something that we do at the beginning to become a Christian, but every time as we see different sins in our life, we need to confess that. And ultimately, it's not you know, confessing it to uh, you know, uh, someone else or a, a priest or your pastor or something. There can be times we're confessing it to you know, a friend or someone that you sinned against, that can be good, but ultimately it's that you're confessing it to the Lord. And you're going to him and saying, Lord, I recognize that I am, I am sinner. I see this sin in my life. That you're saying, I recognize that this thing that I'm doing, this is sin. This goes against your word. It goes against your will. And Lord, I want to have the same attitude about this that you have helped me with this. And so that's what confession uh, that's at the heart of it what it is, and we need to do that when we see it. Not pretending, well, it's not that big deal, it's not that bad. Or I redefine it, I think it's okay. No, we, we repent in our minds, which in our lives, which means we're trying to get our lives in conformity to what God says about it. We confess, we trust Jesus to continue to wash away our sins. And it's said that those that uh, confess their sin, God is faithful and just to, to forgive them, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness to remember that Jesus shed his blood on the cross to cleanse you of your sin, that you're not trying to take steel wool to your own heart and your life, but you're trusting in the blood of Christ to continuously cleanse you of those sins. And yeah, we repent. We start walking in the light again, the best that we can with the Lord's help, even knowing we're not going to do it perfect, but that's our goal. That's what we try to do. And... This passage tells us then that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Man, this is a big deal. And this is, this is our hope for when we sin, is that Jesus Christ pleads our case before the Father. 
That's what it means when it says that, that we have an advocate with him. The Greek word for this is parakletos or paraclete, and it can be translated a lot of different ways in Scripture, intercessor, counselor, advocate, comforter, uh, which may or may not give you the right idea. It literally means someone called alongside. That's what it means. And it was used for, in a law setting, use of a, someone's lawyer, their advocate that was called alongside them to help them and to then plead the case for them if it was in a court of law. So here, it has the meaning of one who speaks on the behalf of one who is accused. And so, yeah, we're accused of our sins. I mean, our, our hearts, you know, accuse us of sin. Satan accuses us of sin. And it's easy to do because we are sinners. Not making stuff up. Most of the time, we are really guilty. There might be some things that we feel false guilt, but there's a lot of real guilt there that we actually, it's true. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren, accuser of Christians. He loves to point to us and say, guilty, guilty. And to keep you feeling just in your guilt that you're going to run away from God because of your guilt. And he would love it if he could go before God, and this is what he'd love to do, and say, God, I know you love these people, but you have to send them away to hell forever because they're sinners and you are a holy God. And so how can you, if you claim to be this holy God, you claim to be good, righteous all the time, are you going to just excuse sin? Are you going to be one of these judges that just throws out the law and says, who cares? If you are a God of justice, you need to send these people to hell. Too bad if you love them. That is what justice demands. And so Satan is accusing us, and he has a point because we are guilty. But Jesus is our, our defense lawyer. I mean, if you, committed a, if you actually committed a crime, you'd probably want to hire the best defense lawyer that you could, the best attorney, whatever you could hire. And we, you know that the, the more, in our world, the more you can shell out, the better def, a defense attorney that you could get. Realize here that we have been appointed, we have the, the best defense attorney that there actually possibly could be. That it's the Son of God himself that is going to be our advocate. Is Jesus, and he's the righteous one. He's not some corrupt attorney. He's not some crooked lawyer that's going to try and just do a bunch of tricks or to uh, brush aside the law. He is, he is righteous. And we have one, the Son of God, that is our advocate. If you are a Christian, you have Jesus as your advocate. And notice, it, it's him. It's not anybody else, okay? It's not any saints that you pray to. It's not the Virgin Mary. It's not your pastor, okay? It's not your mom, Okay, if you used to run into your mom and, you know, ever talk to the principal, get me out of trouble, you know, nope, Jesus Christ, he is the one and the only one, and he's righteous. As one commentator has pointed out, it is the one who has acted righteously, who now stands in the presence of the Father to speak on behalf of those who have not acted righteously, because we are sinners, we are genuinely guilty. Jesus never stops being our advocate. Romans 8, 33-34 talks about this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, standing there on our behalf. But here's the question, because we haven't answered this yet. Because so far, Satan is the one that's right that I am a sinner, you are a sinner. And if he is going before the Lord, accusing us of sin, he's right, we have, we have sinned. And so how can Jesus Christ be the righteous one, to be one who is just, and yet give a non-guilty verdict, give a plea of non-guilty for us and argue for that for people like us that we are guilty? And that's where the gospel comes in. That's where what Jesus did, what no one else could do. And that's what we have to understand and we have to remember and we have to rely on. And that's what we're going to see the answer for this when we get to, when we look at the next verse. So forgiveness is real because Jesus intercedes for us. And forgiveness is real because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. 
the propitiation. And this is where we have to talk about. It's not one that we use all that often. Uh, propitiation. Some translations say sacrifice of atonement. And that would be a, a description of what it is. It's a sacrifice that atones, takes away sin, satisfies uh, wrath. But the Greek word for propitiation that's translated here is halasmas. And this was used uh, in, you know, the times that the New Testament was written, uh, other religions would, would use this word for sacrifices that were made to the gods to kind of appease their wrath or their anger and to kind of to pacify them. Because remember in those days they thought there was all kinds of different gods and some controlled the sea, some controlled the rain and the crops. And if you thought, well, the, 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 the God is angry with me and I'm going on a voyage need to make a, uh, some kind of sacrifice uh, to Poseidon, you know, so that he you know, gives me a safe voyage and he's not mad with me. So they would find something valuable and sacrifice this. So when Paul used this word, so people would have heard it, they would have known what it meant. And so it means that in a sense, but we're going to see the biblical understanding of that is not exactly the same. There are some really significant differences on the way this works um, with Christianity and Jesus being our propitiation. It's not exactly like that with the true God. It's not like you're, um, you're throwing a virgin into the volcano to appease the volcano gods. But there's a sense where it's a little bit like that. And even in the Old Testament, you see this sacrificial system where people sinned and God gave different sacrifices that he prescribed that they needed to do um, in order to at least cover their sin for the time being. And I believe these sacrifices pointed ahead to the ultimate sacrifice that would really take away sin. And that's why when Jesus comes into the world, John the Baptist sees him and points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God, lambs were a common part of the sacrifices, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So a definition that I can give you here for propitiation, and it says here, he is the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation, at least how it's used here, is a sacrifice that satisfies the holy wrath of God. I think wrath. You know, there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about wrath. God isn't a God of wrath. God's a God of love, isn't he? God's just a, he's not ever angry. He's not ever filled with wrath. For there are even <laughs> some churches uh, that will take the, the hymn in Christ alone and they'll change. They're so upset about the word wrath that they've changed the line where it talks about um, God's wrath and says the wrath of God was satisfied and they change it to the love of God was satisfied because they don't want to think about God's wrath. But if you read your Bible, it doesn't take you long to realize that God is upset at times, that God has anger, that God has wrath. It talks about this. Now, we have to realize that God's anger is not like our anger, okay? It's not a one-to-one -one comparison, okay? In, in God, it's not even exactly an emotion, but it's a, it's a settled disposition. He is holy, he is good, and he is just, and therefore he is against sin. He is against evil. I mean, would you want a God that isn't against evil? That's just okay with it. And so God being against evil, against sin, uh, that is described as him being angry against this. And his wrath is when that is expressed, when that is, uh, the consequences are being given about this. And Scripture makes this clear, Old Testament, New Testament, Romans 1, verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the Bible talks about this. I mean, it is a reality that God is a God of wrath. And propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies that wrath. Now, to help us understand propitiation, and because we're talking about propitiation this morning, I get to tell you one of my best stories. Okay? And... Uh, <laughs> This is something, this actually happened, okay? 
and this, this is a real thing. And in my defense, I was 16 years old, okay? So uh, when I tell you this story, again, a true story, it actually happened. I grew up in Wisconsin. I was um, working for my dad. That's part of the background that you need to know for this story. And with his business, I, I guess the other thing I'll tell you at the very beginning of this to just kind of set this up is that uh, people that drive Harley-Davidson motorcycles really love their Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Okay, that's just important background information. And they get really upset if something should happen to their Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Okay, such as, let's say, running it over with a car. Okay. So when I was 16, uh, my dad had started a business where he rented out floor mats uh, to different companies. And if you go into most stores, they have floor mats when you enter, and we don't think about them. Uh, but my dad realized that uh, most companies, we were in a small town halfway between Milwaukee and Green Bay, and he realized most of the companies that were servicing people in our area, in Sheboygan County, Wisconsin, uh, were coming from Milwaukee, Green Bay, and he thought, hey, I'm local, I, could, I can undercut them, do it for cheaper. And so he started a business, a mat rental business, uh, that he had and, you know, uh, had in the, the rest of his life, and he built this business. Uh, but in the early days, it ran out of the garage. Um, it, he'd be, you know, cleaning. Uh, he had service master equipment. He'd be cleaning these mats, you know, late at night and then delivering them. And so one of my jobs as a 16-year-old was mat delivery guy. And so I drove the, well, the Matmobile, uh, which was a 84 Crown Victoria. And an important thing to know about this as well too, uh, some of you uh, know what this car would be like, but it's not this little compact car like you have today. Okay, a Crown Vic was a big car, okay? And uh, so it was great for you know, deliveries, big trunk, and so I would do the deliveries. And so it was pretty simple. I'd go into the different businesses and have the clean mats. I'd go in and you know, roll up the dirty ones, uh, you know, put down the clean ones, have them sign the clipboard for the delivery, take the dirty ones out to the car, throw them in the gigantic trunk, and there we go, and take them back to uh, be cleaned. And so one time on my route, uh, it was a motorcycle repair shop that was on the route, and I stopped there, and I went in like normal, had the mats, you know, rolled up the dirty ones, uh, put down the clean ones, had the guy sign on the clipboard, and while I'm doing that, I didn't notice that somebody had parked uh, his Harley Davidson motorcycle uh, right behind uh, the Crown Vic, behind the car. And I was distracted looking at the clipboard when I came back to the car, and I got in the car, and I looked behind, but I didn't notice the handlebars sticking up, because remember, it's a big car, big front end, big trunk, and so I started backing up. And as I did this, I heard a uh, kind of a thud and then a crunching sound, like, oh no, what is this? And then soon, it was revealed to me uh, kind of what had happened as the owner of the motorcycle uh, saw this happening, and I don't know where he came from. It seemed like he you just descended from a hill or something. I don't remember. But he's exactly what you would picture. Now remember, I'm 16. I'm the scrawny 16-year-old kid. And uh, this guy was, again, exactly what you would picture. Leather jacket, you know, beard, tattoos, the whole thing. And he was really mad. Okay? I mean, that's an understatement. And he's yelling, what are you doing? You're running over my bike. And he said words that I can't say to you in church here. Um, but most of them involved my immediate death, which was about to happen. Okay? And so I am, I am freaking out. Okay? So, oh no, I've just ran over this guy's bike. So it's, right now it's kind of lodged underneath where the trunk is in the back of the car. So I'm like, okay. So I start driving forward, and the bike's just kind of lodged under there. So it starts kind of dragging it across the gravel, uh, which makes the gentleman even more upset. Uh, <coughs> so <laughs> I've, now I've, I've dragged it underneath. Now the, the car comes off of the motorcycle. And again, I'm sitting in the car. I'm, I'm in a panic. And first of all, I might not survive this because he's said, I'm going to kill you. So there's that. But also um, thinking, I know that these are not 
cheap bikes. And that afternoon, I was supposed to go with my dad to buy a used car that I had picked out. And I'm just imagining, there goes all my money because I'm going to have to give it all to this guy if I survive. Uh, so all these thoughts are going through my head and there's yelling going on and all of this. So I jump out of the car to see how bad it is and uh, to, to talk to this guy. Again, distracted, not quite in the right frame of mind. And when I jumped out of the car, I, I neglected to put it in park. So I got up and then watched as the car rolled backwards <laughs> and rolled over his motorcycle again. <sighs> In many ways, God is not like an angry motorcycle rider, but there are also similarities. You don't want to go against God. You don't want him to be upset. The scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's not someone we want to pick a fight with. But the truth is, we have all ran over God's motorcycle, haven't we? Metaphorically, we've all ran over it. We've, we've trampled on something that God cares very deeply about. I mean, God cares about his glory. He cares about true justice. He cares about uh, the, the just, righteous workings of this world. And when we sin, we are trampling on those things. We're especially trampling on his glory. We're saying, I am the one that should be king. I am the one that knows better. I am the one that gets to declare what's sin or not. And God, you are you're a liar or you don't know what you're talking about because why are you withholding this good? We're, we're doing something. We're trampling on his glory, which is he deserves to be the center of the universe. His glory is the best thing for us. And God knows us. He cares about it. And we have all ran over his motorcycle. And not just once. We keep running it over every time we sin. We're trampling on it. And God has a right to be angry. Again, his anger is not like ours, but he has a right to be angry. But God's anger is not out of control. That's where there are differences. God does not have a short fuse Okay, thank God. He is the most perfect, the most just, the most loving being in all eternity, in all existence. And he actually did something about it. I got to tell you how the story ends, because spoiler alert, I'm still alive. Um, <clears throat> so the owner of the motorcycle shop uh, came out, uh, didn't want to see an actual, you know, somebody murdered on his property. Uh, calmed this you know, guy down the best that he could and he said, okay, you know, let's, let's take a look at the bike. Let's see what, um, what has actually been damaged. And somehow, by the grace of God, because uh, the tires didn't actually go over the thing. It was just kind of lodged under the trunk. There was only certain parts you know, that had been sticking out in the ends that took most of the damage. And so we're at a motorcycle repair shop. Uh, the guy goes back in and he punches up how much it would cost for these parts he comes out and says, okay, how much, you know, this much, and adds a little bit on for the trouble. And again, this was uh, in the early 90s, uh, but still, he says, um, okay, how about you give this guy 50 bucks? And I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> okay. And so I, I went home, got 50 bucks, came, gave it to this guy. Uh, I told my dad about it 10 years later. Uh, <laughs> but in through this, um, <laughs> he, was, he was satisfied with it, you know, and his anger subsided. I'd made things right by paying him what he needed to to fix uh, his bike, which was surprisingly less than I think any of us would, would imagine. A price was paid that propitiated his justified anger. A price was paid to make things right. And I got out of it with 50 bucks. But our sin debt to the Lord is way more than 50 bucks. You can't even multiply it enough. Our sin debt for the Lord is infinite. Think of how much we sin 
in word and deed, things we should do, things we don't do, and realize the fact that even a small sin against an infinitely holy God is infinitely terrible. We owe an infinite debt to the Lord. How are you going to ever pay that? How are we ever going to pay that to make it right with the Lord? The truth is we can't. We can't do this. God the Father had to send his son to pay the price for us. It had to be someone, it had to be someone that became a human, but someone that was of infinite worth that could pay for our sin. It would have to be someone of infinite worth to even pay for, for one person's sin, much less to cover potentially everyone of their sins. God the Father, this is the, this is the message of the gospel. This is how God can be both just and justifier of those who have faith in him. is because the price was paid. It was paid in full for us. And this was not divine child abuse. There's some theologians that have said that. That if you say that this is how we're saved, that's divine child abuse. Are you kidding? God sent the son, but the son came willingly. And he's a son, but he's not like this helpless little child. And, and he came voluntarily as well. He came out of the same love that God the Father has for us and God the Holy Spirit has because there's one God. They share all these. And Jesus Christ, it's not that it was just God the Father that was upset about sin. Jesus feels the same way about our sin. But it was his role in God's plan to come and to die for sinners. And so in reality, it's God that paid the sacrifice himself for us to be saved. And he paid it and he paid it in full. And that is why a righteous God can forgive sinners. And that's why we sing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There are other passages in Scripture talk about this. Later on in John, 1 John 4.10. This is love. Okay, God is a God that has wrath. He is also a God of love, and this shows God's love also at the same time. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the book of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, that means declared righteous, by his grace as a gift. We didn't earn it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice you have to receive it by faith, by trusting in him, or else it doesn't do you any good. It's available, but it needs to be received by faith. As John wrote in his, the Gospel of John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you can still be under the wrath of God. You are. That's our default. You still have it coming to us, because we all do, unless you come to Christ and you come under the cross. You come under the one that has taken this, that has absorbed it for you, that shields you from the wrath of God because he has taken it and he has paid it on your behalf or else you remain in your sin. And our main passage for today, it says, he is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We think, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's a propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Let me say first what I think this does not mean. A few things I think it does not mean. It does not mean universalism. Okay, so it does not mean that everyone is saved. Because, well, Jesus paid for everyone's sin and therefore everyone is saved. We know from Scripture, it's really clear that uh, the people that don't have faith in Christ, they're not saved. They could be if they came to him, but you're not otherwise. You remain under the wrath of God. And it talks about the multitudes being lost and being condemned, dying without a Savior. So it doesn't mean universalism. And I also think, we're going to get into some little bit of deep water here, this does not mean that every sin everywhere was imputed to Christ on the cross so that the wrath of God was satisfied for absolutely every human sin. Let me say this in another way. If everyone's sin was actually paid for 
then nobody would go to hell. Okay? If Jesus died for everyone's sin in the exact same way, that would result in universalism. That would mean that no one would go to hell. But the Bible is clear that God still has wrath against sin and that most people are still under that wrath. And also, I don't think it would work to say that Jesus atoned for every sin except for unbelief. Unbelief is still a sin. And all of us lived at a time in unbelief. And we needed Jesus to propitiate that sin as well. Now, in the other extreme, okay, in the other extreme, it's sometimes thought that people who believe in what's called particular atonement, different words for it, believe that Jesus only suffered just enough to save the elect, okay? And that he would have had to do more, he would have had to suffer more in order to save any additional people. And I do believe that Scripture talks about election. God in his plan knows who he's, he's planned to save and how it's going to work out, okay? But that is actually a misunderstanding of the position of particular atonement or sometimes called limited atonement. People who reject particular atonement usually misunderstand it. And I'll say people that accept particular atonement often misunderstand it as well. In reality, when you look at some of the uh, people that are into Reformation theology that write about this, um, it is actually more about the intent of the atonement than the extent of the atonement. What that means is that when Jesus went to the cross, he knew who he was going to save according to his preordained plan and knowledge, the intent of it. Um, he knew that his death was going to be saving some people and he knew that it would not be saving others. And that's why there are verses in Scripture that do specifically talk about Jesus dying for his sheep or specifically for his church. Jesus died in a special way for believers or, as the Bible says, for the elect, who, according to God's plan, would one day believe and be saved. But there are also passages that emphasize the universal availability of the offer of forgiveness. And so when we look at this passage and we say that he's saying it's not only uh, ours only, the people he's talking to, but for the sins of the whole world, one of the things that I think he's saying is that there is only one Savior that is available for the world, okay? And he is available for the world, wherever they are, whatever type of people, whatever background, whatever ethnicity, uh, there's not different saviors for different people with different propitiations. There's Jesus or you don't have it. There's one and one for everyone. And that the sacrifice of Jesus was valuable enough to save any and all who would come to him for salvation. This is, I believe, an accurate way that we could say this, is that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all, sufficient for the world, but is efficient for those who will believe or for those that are God's elect, those that in his plan he knows that he will bring to faith. Now, for those of you that deeply love the theology of the Reformation, I want you to know this is actually the classical understanding of particular atonement. It goes back to a theologian, Peter Lombard, had this formula, that, uh, sufficient for all, efficient for the elect, or which ends up being those that are believers you know, as well. You can see it in Charles Hodge, even John Calvin. And if you want real Reformation credibility, the canons of Dort... Let me read to you the Canons of Dort 2.3, quote, the infinite value of Christ's death. The death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. So yes, Christ technically made substitutionary atonement, particularly for the sins of the elect, those who would believe, but his death is of infinite value because this is the Son of God. 
So much so that um, it's not that he had to spill more blood if you, more people would end up being saved at the end. That his value of his sacrifice is sufficient to cover any and all, the whole world, all that would come to him for salvation. And this means that therefore, the offer of this gospel, the offer of forgiveness is good for you. If you confess your sinfulness and turn to Jesus Christ because of the cross, you will be forgiven. Please hear me. As I say these last words of this message, there is a real God and there is a real hell. But let me look you in the eye and tell you that no matter your sins, there is real forgiveness. There is real forgiveness available to you because Jesus Christ paid the price for sinners on the cross. Come to him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that although our sin problem is real, that forgiveness is real because you died on the cross to save sinners. And Lord, because it was you, because it was Jesus Christ of infinite value and worth, we know that the blood of Christ is more valuable than any of our sins, than any of our sin debts, Lord God, and it can take care of any of that. So Lord, I would ask that whoever here is still wrapped up in their sin and racked in it, racked in guilt, and thinks that you could never forgive them, let them believe, not because I say it, but because the Bible says it, that you say it in the Bible, that they can turn to you and that they will be saved because Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life for them and died on the cross to take away their sins. Lord, this is the gospel, this is the truth, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.